It's uh, Acts 19. Again, we're going through the book of Acts. And uh, this is our study of the early church. It is the church on mission. You remember we were saying that this is the unstoppable mission of the church. Because you remember that the church is not this building, right? This is a church building, but we are the church. That's important. Scripture teaches us that very clearly, that we are the church. And Jesus said, I will build my church. He's continuing to build us and grow us as we allow him to through the moving of his Holy Spirit within us. And so in Acts, we get to study the uh, history of the early church and how it, uh, God started to build it through the Lord and, and the giving of the Holy Spirit. And we've seen quite a bit because we are now in the middle of Acts 19. So we've been through 18 and a half chapters and we've seen a lot. There's been some recurring themes, but none really more important than noticing that God's plans cannot be thwarted, no matter how many people tried, and that the giving of the Holy Spirit at the very beginning of the book in Pentecost was key and a cornerstone, because it was the Holy Spirit who was really driving and moving this uh, through the apostles' work. So this morning's passage is in Acts 19, and it's verses 11 to 20, so just a few short verses, and in just a couple minutes I'm going to read it. And if you've read ahead, you'll know, I think you'll recognize that it's a very peculiar passage of Scripture. There's some really interesting characters that we're going to meet. Um, it's almost like it kind of plays out like it could make a really good movie script. But it's, uh, it's quite interesting. But what we're going to really look at this morning is this idea of how we often try to use God instead of recognizing that it is He who uses us. That's a very simple premise, but just think about that. Don't we oftentimes in our walk with the Lord and living out the Christian life kind of do and say things that show that we are actually trying to use God and His powers to authenticate what we're doing as opposed to submitting and surrendering our will to His and let Him do His thing through us. See, like most other things, we kind of get it backwards, right? It's interesting when you read through the teaching of Jesus. It doesn't seem like everything that he teaches us to do is the opposite of what we would naturally do, right? So you're going to see that this morning. But um, as I was thinking about this, you know, there's a lot to be said in this passage and elsewhere in Scripture about miracles. And it's one of those ways that we can often, even not realizing we're doing it, try to tap into God's power for our purposes, calling on God to work miracles, but not recognizing that ultimately it's His will and His way. So we're also going to look at what does it mean to pray for a miracle? What is a miracle? Perhaps there is some confusion about that. So we want to shed some light on that, of course, all from Scripture. You know, so I had heard this story once about a, a so-called faith healer who was well-known in the area, and he came to a local hospital to bring his miracles of healing to the sick. So as this so-called faith healer went around from room to room with a growing crowd of onlookers, there was a busy doctor in the hospital, and not knowing what was going on, he had a whole bunch of papers and files with him, and and he came to that area not understanding what was happening, and he just took a a quick seat in an empty wheelchair in the hallway to finish up his paperwork. 
So as the faith healer made his way down the hallway to the next room, he saw the doctor sitting in the wheelchair and he laid his hand on the doctor's head and blessed him and then went to the next room. But the doctor, still oblivious, he quickly stood up and walked towards the down the hall to finish his rounds as the onlookers all shouted, it's a miracle! See, miracles in many ways are a matter of perspective. Right? So we're going to kind of look at that this morning. What does it look like to pray for a miracle? What does a miracle look like in the life of a Christian? There are many Christians that flock to churches and ministries and watch many on TV. We're going to just touch on that, that are really seeking a miracle from God. Why is that? And what should we truly expect? What does the Bible teach us about miracles? Perhaps this story says it more poignantly. There is also a story about a king who one day was sitting in his beautiful garden. And he had one of his counselors next to him speaking to him about the wonderful works of his God, the one true God. So the king said, well, show me a sign, counselor, and I will believe. So the counselor said, here are four acorns. Will you, majesty, plant them in the ground, but then stoop down for a moment and look into this clear pool of water? So the king did so. He planted the acorns and he bent down and looked into the clear pool of water. And so the counselor said, now look up. And the king looked up and he saw four large oak trees where he had planted the acorns. The king said, wonderful, this is indeed a miracle, the work of God. But the counselor says to them, king, how long were you looking into the water? Only for a second. The king said, the counselor replied, in fact, my king, it has been 80 years. They have passed as but a second. But the king looked at his garments and they were threadbare. He looked at his reflection in the water again and he noticed he had become a very old man. So he said, there is no miracle here then, he said angrily. But the counselor finally said, indeed, there is. For it is God's work, whether He did it in one second or 80 years. It's a matter of perspective. So this morning we're going to look at miracles. We're going to look at how it is that sometimes we use God instead of allowing Him to use us. Right? God is not a genie that we keep in the bottle. It's also a question of authority that we'll see come out as it plays out in this passage. And we're going to see what does it mean when we say Jesus is Lord of our life? From that moment that we believe, we then make a choice to spend the rest of our days calling Him Lord. Surrendering, submitting to Him, deciding to be a disciple and follower and learner of His. And then finally, we will see that there is a place in all of our hearts where unrepentant sin lies, and that can often lead us to looking to God to do what we want, rather than us seeking what God wants. So let me read the passage to you. It'll be up on the screen for you. This is Acts 19, 11 to 20. 
it says this, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers, they came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the Word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now you might be thinking, what just happened? There was a lot going on there. Well, this passage of Scripture, it starts with this verse. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. And it ends with this verse. The Word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Isn't that great? That's really the theme. The unstoppable mission of the church. It continues to grow and to move. But here, sandwiched in between those two great verses, we see some interesting things happening. So right away, think about it. What did you think of when we read verse 12 when it said handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them? What do you think of that? Isn't that interesting? Does that bring to mind anything? There's some other scriptures we're going to look at when the similar thing kind of happened. But don't we have people doing that, proclaiming to do this in the name of Jesus these days? We see them on TV. We read, we read about them. We're going to look at some scriptures to see what, um, what God has to say about uh, teachers, the Word of God, who do that. But it's a really interesting thing. There's a couple of other um, times in scripture where similar things happen. But first, I just want to give you some background. Let's remember where Paul is. Okay, this is his third missionary journey. He's in Ephesus. And what I had mentioned before was that Ephesus was, um, it was a big center of commerce, but also, more importantly, for this morning, it was a center of what we might call today sort of New Ageism. There was a lot of magic and mystical things happening. It was um, the place where there was this great temple of Artemis, or some called the Temple of Diana, a goddess, and people worshipped at this temple. They would take bits and pieces of the temple and they would believe that there would be power in these things, these little trinkets. They'd put it around their neck. Do you see? So you can imagine when they see, 
when they see aprons and handkerchiefs that came off of Paul going and healing, you could see why it says that some of them undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus for their own purposes. Did you catch that? They kind of had these magicians kind of had like a portfolio of magic tricks and things that they can do. They're like, wow, I can see what's happening here. Let's add Jesus to the mix. And they started to try to do it as well, but for the wrong reasons. Do you remember Simon, the sorcerer that we met many chapters ago and what he tried to do with the power of the Holy Spirit? It said in that passage, I think it was in Acts 8, it said that they came across Simon the sorcerer and he became a believer. But he still hadn't fully committed, of course, everything in his life to the Lord. So what did he do? He saw that the laying on of hands brought about the Holy Spirit. He said, let me get some of that. He even offered money. How much for that power? But of course, it was the wrong motivation. In everything we do, we need to check our motivation. What is our motivation? And so that's a big part of what's happening here. So it says in verse 13 that they undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus again, and they tried to cast out a demon. And they said, I adjure you by the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. He's like, the, the, the one that Paul proclaims, yeah, Jesus. They didn't even know who he was. And they're trying to use his name for power. So there were these seven sons of a Jewish high priest, right? And they were doing just this thing. But then in verse 15, something very interesting happens. You can almost kind of chuckle at it, right? It says that the demon spoke through this possessed man to the seven sons who were trying to cast out the demon in Jesus' name. And the demon says, well, Jesus, I know. Even Paul, I recognize him. But who are you? And then it says, the man in whom the evil... This is crazy. The man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on all seven in that room. He overtook all of them. And it says, they fled out of the house wounded and naked. What a sight that would be. So you can imagine, as it says, this became known. Of course it did, right? That went viral, as we would say today. There wasn't even a video for it. Everybody knew about it. Fear fell on them all. Of course it did. But in the end... The name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Hallelujah. So even through that, the power in the name of the Lord Jesus came to be. But verse 18 is also quite interesting. I'm skimming through this to get to some of these these, uh, principles here. But in verse 18, it says, Many of those who were believers, okay, these were believers in Jesus the Christ as their Savior, they came confessing, and divulging their practices. In verse 19, they even brought some of their magic art books and they started to burn them. They had a big book burning. And they continued. It says they counted them all and found the value was 50,000 pieces of silver. Some scholars think that was worth millions of dollars in these books of magic arts. So think about that. There were some in this city of Ephesus who had once practiced magic taken pieces of the temple of diana and used it and sold them and did whatever they did as magicians to make money for selfish gain to gain power and prestige and recognition and they did it 
But then it says that some of them, they were believers, but then they came confessing, divulging their practices. You know, at the moment of salvation, when you believe, as Scripture tells us, right? Remember what, the, what uh, was said to the Philippian jailer? How, must, how do I become saved? How do I become a Christian? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. At the moment that you believe, do you become perfect? A perfect Christian to never sin again? Do you automatically at that moment commit every part of your life to Him to never have to do that again? No. So what we see is a great example of this principle. Here were believers who came to the Lord Jesus, right? And understanding and knowledge and faith in Him, believing that He was who He says He was, and did what He said He was going to do and did. But yet, even for many years, because Paul spent almost three years ministering in Ephesus, they didn't stop, to some extent, practicing magic. They had not fully committed every part of their life to Him. It took a few years. And you know what? To be honest, I take that as encouraging. Because we all fail and falter. We all recognize through our journey with Him, walking with the Lord, at some point in our life, there's things that we need to surrender and submit to Him. Right? Some, that's why I talk about unrepentant sin. There's always those things in our lives that we have yet to surrender to the Lord. And praise God, throughout our lives there can be many victories. And we know there are. That God, through His Holy Spirit, gives us power to overcome. Do you remember, we know that there's still the presence of sin in our lives, but yet we are no longer slaves to it. Amen? So that is the power of the Gospel, that we are freed from being slaves to sin. So we have the power within us, Scripture tells us, clearly in Romans and elsewhere, that it's that same power that raised Christ from the dead. We have that within us that we can say no, that we can be overcomers. Because Christ first overcame the world. You see, what's interesting here is that we have these evidently believers in Jesus now coming after many years after seeing what happened and this great spectacle and they say, it's time for me to give this up. And they come and they confess. And they divulge their practices to the point where they gather books and start to burn them. Have you ever had to do that in your life? I hope you have. Because it's part of the Christian journey. You know, when I was in college, um, it was my, my, my second year at school and I had just become a believer. And I had some friends who were also new believers that were in our Christian group. And I may have shared this before, and they were really much into the Grateful Dead, that band, right? And everything they did, every, their decorations in their room, everything, it even smelled like you would think it might smell, right? But here's what God did for them. God convicted both of them, they were roommates, that they needed to get rid of all of that. They threw out all of those records. I kind of cringe when I think of that, but that's a different story. But you know what? It's not for me to judge because God convicted them that they needed to get rid of that in their lives because it was a God to them. It was a hindrance to their submitting to God and calling Him Lord. 
Now, when they told me that I needed to do the same thing, that was a different story with the music that I listened to. But to be honest, that wasn't a stumbling block for me, at least not at that moment in time. But the point is, is that God convicted them they needed to do that. So that's what we see here. There were believers in the Lord Jesus who had not yet given up practicing magic and the dark arts, as we might call it. And they were still, to some extent, because of what they were doing, worshiping at the feet of an idol, a goddess named Diana. But it took this event to get their attention where they came before others, and it said they confessed, and most importantly, before God. They confessed that unrepentant sin. So perhaps the most important message we can glean from this passage is don't ever underestimate the power of unrepentant sin in your life. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. And remember, what we have been saved from is being slaves to sin. We know that eternity is ours because Christ defeated death and overcame the grave. Am I right? But we know that the presence of sin has not been fully removed. That won't happen until we're glorified. See, there's justification, there's sanctification, and then there's glorification. We look forward to that day when sin has no place in our lives anymore. But until that day, we are reliant upon this one important word called repentance. You know what repentance is? It means a changing of mind. The biblical definition of repentance is to change your mind about something. So repentance, when it's applied to salvation, doesn't mean just saying you're sorry for your sins. It means changing your mind about who Jesus Christ is. From first believing that He is not the Son of God and the Savior to then believing that He is. That is simply what repentance is. But repenting of sins that you commit especially those that you commit habitually and have not yet surrendered to the Lord, that also has a tremendous place in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. Is repenting and confessing, asking and pleading, beseeching God for His mercy. Sometimes we wake up doing that, don't we? Just something we carried over from the day before. But praise God that we have a God who loves us, who cares for us, who loves us so intimately, more than we can even know or love ourselves. And He wants us to simply come to Him like children and confess. Confess our sins to Him. And He is faithful and just to forgive us. We remember that at that moment of salvation for all of us, our sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. But yet there is still an important place in the life of a Christian to say that you're sorry to God for being disobedient to Him. For it is that unrepentant sin that we hold on to that can then lead to all kinds of other issues. And I know you know what I'm talking about. That happens so often. So let's get to this. How about this idea of miracles happening? You know... We don't want to under, we don't want to diminish what it says in the first verse. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. 
Now perhaps you thought like I did and you look at that and you say, extraordinary miracles. It doesn't just say that Paul was doing miracles, that God was doing miracles by the hands of Paul. He was doing extraordinary miracles. Well, aren't miracles extraordinary to begin with? Right? So what is a miracle? It says that first of all, God was doing the miracles. That's probably the most important part, right? But he was doing it through the hands or by the hands of Paul. But they were extraordinary miracles. And I think one of the reasons is this. If you were to look at all of Scripture, you would notice that actually God doing miracles, it wasn't a common everyday occurrence. There are some Christians and some um, churches that proclaim that we should all be noticing miracles and maybe even recognizing people in church today that can perform miracles, just like the apostles. But what is a miracle biblically? Let's, let's look at this. It's important we understand this. Because there is a difference between the idea of a miracle and God's providence. See that? I'll explain those two in a minute. So it says, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. A miracle is very simply when something happens outside of nature, the natural law, supernaturally, that we cannot explain that must have been done by what some people might say a higher power, intelligence, right? We know it is God. So it is a time when God does something above and beyond the natural law that He created that we live within. You see that? Now, we say that Man, we show up to um, to the mall on a crowded Saturday and we can't find a parking spot. And boom, there's a far, the first spot right next to the door. It's a miracle. How many, we've all said that, it's a miracle, right? We ask our kids to clean their room and then one day they do it, it's a miracle, right? So we kind of throw that word around a little lightly, don't we? I mean, we understand, I think, to some degree what we're saying, but let's make sure biblically we get it right. Does God still perform miracles today? Absolutely. Of course He does. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. He can and does perform miracles. But there's also this thing called God's providence. And see, if you look at it from natural and supernatural, it kind of helps better. Because when God actually performs a miracle, we see a few in Scripture that we can look at as examples. He overcomes or stops, let's say, the natural law that He created to do something supernaturally. That is a miracle. But when God does stuff within the natural law He created, that is God's providence. See, that's God orchestrating things behind the scenes for our favor. When he is doing things, right, in his providence, that's an important word to know, that means that God is in control. And I think we would all agree with that. It doesn't necessarily mean he's performing a miracle. But as long as we all understand, most importantly, that it is not coming from us, but it's coming from God. For instance, a miracle, of course, we would recognize uh, came through the persons of Moses and Joshua. How about Elijah the prophet? And of course we know Jesus, right? There were actually, if you were to look at biblical history, scholars have, have um, actually shown that in Scripture you would see from, from Genesis to Revelation, there were only short periods of time 
where God was actually working true miracles, and it was usually when he was um, giving a new revelation, even when Scripture was being written, like through Moses and Joshua, and then through Elijah, right, the prophet, and then, of course, through Jesus, and it was always to authenticate the one who was performing the miracle, that it was coming from God, you see? It wasn't for that person's glorification. It was always for God's glorification. Keep that in mind. Really important. So, of course, we believe that God used Moses to lead himself in Israel, part the Red Sea, and walk through it. That was a miracle. Because God had to supersede the natural law he created to part the water so they could walk through and not even get their feet muddy. That is a miracle, is it not? How about when Elijah raised the widow's son from the dead or called down fire from heaven? Remember that whole story? Right? With the priests of Baal and it consumed the water? We believe that really happened. It's a miracle. Because God, God went above and beyond or superintended, we would say, His natural law. And of course, we believe that Jesus performed miracles. His healings. Signs and wonders. If you look at the New Testament, you can read it. Just don't take my word for it. When you see miracles, they're always called signs and wonders. Well, what do signs do? They point to something, right? They're always pointing back to the originator, God. So when the apostles, when it says here that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, we recognize that it wasn't Paul's power, it was God's power. But he was doing it through the apostles. And if you read through the scriptures, you read through the, the um, uh, if you read through the gospels and Acts, it's where you're going to see miracles being done. But then as you read through the rest of the epistles in the New Testament, you don't really see anything about miracles. But God was using miracles, listen, to authenticate the power of those who were bringing it. Right? Like when he called Moses to go to Pharaoh, perform miracles so Pharaoh would believe. But did he believe? No. When God was performing miracles through the hands of his apostles, we notice that other than perhaps, um, maybe it was Philip and one other, all um, who were very close to the apostles, all the miracles that we see in the New Testament, they were done by the hands of the apostles. Right? There was even strict guidelines saying, there are scriptures elsewhere that talk about what are the things that mark an apostle? Being able to do signs and wonders and miracles. But the whole point of that, and the reason that those kind of miracles are not done by people today, is because it was all to authenticate the power of Jesus and the power of the apostles to found the church that Jesus said that He would then build. You see that? But don't we now have the very Word of God? Right? Especially as we look at the Newer Testament, which they did not have. It was being written and developed, right? We now have the Word of God. We like to say in theological terms, the canon is closed. There's no more new revelation being given by God. There's not going to be all of a sudden you know, a new book coming out that we're going to add to it. And that's important to know. And so we have this understanding of what miracles are in Scripture, but also knowing that God can and will do miracles today. And I would even venture to say that God is doing miracles every day, but we probably miss most of them. 
Is that right? Maybe we're not in tune to it. But regardless, God is doing His thing. And in our lives, He is working providentially, behind the scenes, orchestrating everything on our behalf. Now what about this idea of these prayer cloths? Right? First of all, a practical thing. It said there were handkerchiefs and aprons that were on the Apostle Paul. You follow me? That's what it said. And they would take them and bring them to sick people. And it says... The sick people evidently were healed. And they were healed. Right? It said they were carried away to the sick, their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Evidently, they were all healed. There's other places in Scripture where it says that every person was healed. Now, when you pray for somebody today, do they always get healed? Don't we pray? Maybe that's the, the, the thing that we pray for most. That somebody or even ourselves would be healed. Are we always healed? No. Sometimes you pray for people, they are healed. Praise God. Sometimes they're not. But what does that remind us? Very simply that it's not our will, but it's God's will. Remember, we have to come to God according to His standards, not our standards. See how that works? He's the one that's in charge. You know how like maybe you've, you've said to your kids, they try to do something, you say, this is my house, these are my rules. Well, it's kind of like this is God's universe, it's His rules, right? But don't we often, just as kind of silly children who are still given and prone to sin, that we kind of think that we can direct God and we can use God's power for our benefit, right? Almost kind of like what these, these overzealous Jewish um, exorcists were doing, saying, oh, I see that power, I'm going to use it for my glory, that God would bless my will. Right. Um, there's a passage in Matthew 9, 20-22. You're going to see that up here. Look at what it says. There's a couple instances of this happening. It says, Behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him, meaning Jesus, and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I touch this garment, I will be made well. So she did. Jesus turned And seeing her, what did he say? Take heart, daughter, what? Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Is that important? Was it the power in the garment? Was it the oil from Paul's body that God somehow used as a conduit for his power? No. Jesus turned and said, she was healed. But Jesus said, your faith has made you well. Look at it again in Matthew 14, 34-36. When they had crossed over, they came to a land called Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Him, meaning Jesus, they sent around to all that region and brought to Him all who were sick, and they implored Him that they might only touch the fringe of His garment. And as many as touched it were made well. They were all healed. So God was using that. But again, it was their act of faith. See that? That was the conduit. It wasn't that. Now, perhaps you've seen on TV, you've seen televangelists, you've read about it, heard about it. We don't have to belabor their point. Selling or sending prayer cloths and saying, pray over it, send it back with a generous donation. We laugh, but we kind of laugh like cringingly, like we can't believe it still happens. But it's unfortunate because there are false prophets and teachers 
among us. Look at 2 Peter 2, 1-3. And I just say this not to, to harp on this, but it's important that we are aware and wise. But false prophets also rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, listen, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And their greed, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. This is the Word of God. These are strong words against false teachers. And I want to make sure we recognize here it says, they, they brought in destructive heresies to the church, even dying, denying the Master who bought them. I would even venture to say that it means that they were true believers. Because if, if it says right here that they denied the Master who bought them, these were true believers who were teaching heresies and leading people astray. Do you know, you remember from reading the Gospels, what was the thing, this is super important, what was the thing that upset Jesus the most, that led Him to be, I wouldn't even see irate, but led Him to be, to be so disgruntled with the religious teachers of the day. Why? What were they doing that Jesus was so incensed by it? They were leading the people astray. They were teaching a false gospel. Right? It fits right into what we're saying. We see that Jesus, again, spent so much time railing against the false teachers because they were leading God's children, His people, astray with false teachings. So, as we come to the conclusion, I just want to make sure that we touch on a few other things. Does God perform miracles today? Absolutely yes. We cannot say that enough. But let's also understand that God works through this thing called providence. Right? The difference being that God, when He does something outside of the natural laws He created, right, like parting the Red Sea, or Jesus turning water to wine, can any of you do those things? Right? It goes against the natural laws that God set up and He's in charge of anyway. When He does that, it is obviously a miracle. When He heals people, I believe, when all medicine and all known things say that somebody, right, is beyond the point of healing and God heals them, it is a miracle. It is beyond the natural laws that He created in us and around us. But God also works providentially. And this is how He usually and most of the time works in our lives. It means that He is guiding us to that great parking spot. Why? Well, maybe He's saving us from getting into an accident, you know, if we park somewhere else. Who knows, right? I mean, you could take those and just saying, what if, what if, what if. But God in His, in His providential um, grace and His sovereignty is working in our lives. And that's most important that we understand that. Some people, they pray for miracles to try to prove that God exists. Kind of like that king in our story at the beginning. Trying to prove that God exists by working a miracle, right? But God in His providence can sometimes do things in a second or sometimes He answers prayers many years later, right? 
But as long as we understand that God was doing miracles through the apostles to authenticate their power was coming from God and to lay a foundation for the church and for the Word of God, which we now have. And I will end with this. You remember the parable of Jesus that he told the story of the rich man and the poor poor man who was named Lazarus? Different Lazarus than the one we know about. It says, when they both died in this parable, the rich man begged Abraham, you remember this? To have Lazarus do a couple things. Bring him some water, remember? But also to come to, um, that Abraham would allow Lazarus to come back from the dead so that the rich man's brothers would be warned. Remember they were both dead in the parable? And the rich man is saying, uh, Abraham, somehow he was able to talk to Abraham. Again, it's a parable. Jesus is telling the story. That he was able to talk to Abraham and say, make Lazarus come back from the dead so everybody will be warned. What did Abraham say? He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. That's the first response. Abraham says, they don't need a miracle. They have the Word of God. They can read about God parting the Red Sea. They don't need another miracle. And the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then I know they'll repent. But what did Abraham say? He said, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. He was talking about the Pharisees. They wanted signs. And they wanted signs to make it so clear that would compel them to believe. But they refused the truth of the Scriptures. So Abraham tells them in this parable, it's Jesus telling the Pharisees, I could do all the signs and wonders you want. You still will not believe. Remember what Jesus said about those who came and ate the feeding of the 5,000. He said, they're not even following me for the signs and wonders. They just like the free food. It's like for personal gain that we can do that. So again, we need to watch our motivation. You know, it was said this way. The great miracle is really just God Himself. And if you grant that as true, then all is possible. The great miracle is God Himself. And if you grant that, then all is possible. We must understand and remember that God performed the greatest miracle, the only one needed, the greatest miracle of all time, by coming to earth to live among us as a man, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins so that we could be saved. Is that not the greatest miracle God has ever performed? Right? So we already have that miracle. We don't need to seek God for miracles. We can pray God. We can pray that He works a miracle in somebody's life and heal them. And that's good because God does work miracles. But remember, He is already at work in your life and others' lives by His great sovereignty and providence because He loves you. But let's remember that greatest miracle ever. And if we're honest, we could be just like the rich man, if God came right now in this room and performed a miracle and did something that superseded His natural law and it was evident to all of us, 
how would that change your life? Whatever it might be, would you then have the greatest faith ever and you would never sin again? You would never doubt God again? Is that what would happen? Don't we often think of that and then we kind of chuckle afterwards like, man, if I was one of those disciples, I would never have denied Him. If I could have just walked with Jesus and, and ate with Him and slept next to Him and heard Him teach for three years, man, that's what I would have. Man, I would definitely have faith then. If God performed a miracle right now, how would it change us? Well, I can tell you the truth of Scripture, the truth of the true Gospel, that God already did perform the most important miracle of all time, and that is by coming to earth in the form of man, as He said that He would, to bring us salvation. That's the miracle that we should pray for in the lives of all of those that we know that have, yet, that have not yet met Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank You. For your amazing word, God, there's so much that we can't even cover it all, but God, we thank you that you are a God of miracles. Thank you that you continue to work miracles. We believe it. God, you created natural laws that we live within, but you're in charge of them. You can do as you will. God, would you be merciful towards us as even in our walk with you, our journey with you, that we oftentimes act as if we are the ones who are in control, that we make the rules and ask you to bless our will. Father, would you help us to turn that around, to repent of that, to change our mind, and to understand that it is all about us submitting to your will. And Father, that we wouldn't be guilty as the sons of Siva were in trying to use your power for our gain, but any blessings you give us we want to return it right back to You for Your glory. God, continue to use us and bless us as a church, but also individually. Father, that we would seek to be Your hands and feet, to be Your ambassadors, to share the good news of the Gospel, the greatest miracle in history, that we now represent that. Father, we thank You for the hope that that means for the world. And God, that we would be courageous enough and willing enough to share the story of that miracle and how it changed us and how you are still changing lives. We thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.